Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Carla Pugh, Vice Chair of Innovation in the Department of Surgery at Stanford University in California. Dr. Pugh delivered the I.S. Rabdon Lecture during the Clinical Congress 2022 on wearable technology and artificial intelligence, how the medical field has just begun to scratch the surface of their potential and how they can be used to improve patient outcomes. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Well, first, I'd like to thank the nominating committee for allowing me to share some of my work. This is a huge honor when your colleagues recognize work that you have accomplished in your career. And it's especially special for me, given that I have definitely gone off the beaten path. And so this is a huge honor. And thank you all for nominating me and for choosing me to give this lecture. It's always humbling to look up the person who holds the name of the lecture that you're giving. And this was just one of the high accolades that I found regarding IS Ravden. I won't go into details, but I was pleasantly surprised uh, that the archives online regarding all of his accomplishments in our profession are pretty complete. So there's a lot of really good information Uh, about his contributions uh, to surgery, including uh, the use of albumin as an early uh, therapeutic for burn patients during the Pearl Harbor attack. I have a few disclosures. I will share them here. Some of the technology I will share with you is technology I developed when I was a graduate student over 20 years ago. I have uh, several uh, pending patents, uh, one that's expired that had a license agreement and royalty fees. I have worked with several simulation companies, but I've never accepted financial dollars from those companies regarding my research because I reserve the right to evaluate the technologies I develop and give feedback to the training programs uh, and CME programs as to the utility of the technology. Precision surgery. What does it mean to you when you hear that? A lot of people have a different vision. You have a vision of precisely operating. Um, Others have a vision of future technology, wearable technology, um, eye tracking, and even robotic surgery. And I think that the answer is correct. All of the above, there are many opportunities to allow us to be more precise. One commonality is the data. You cannot improve on what you can't measure. You can't perfect it, you can't be precise. The other factor that plays a role in this is the quality of the data. And when you look at the data that we have regarding surgeon performance, it really is a far outcome. It's the patient outcome. And so when you're trying to connect what happens in the operating room moment to moment 
to that 30-day, 60-day outcome, there's a lot that can be lost in translation. But I will tell you, there are huge opportunities to close the gap on that. A lot of people are excited about AI, and I say it is an amazing data analytic tool, but it will not do the work for us. AI is only as good as the data that we give it. And so we have to design the technologies, partner with the engineers, design the pathways, and help them to understand what is important for us as surgeons. Otherwise, they just have data that they're just measuring, but it doesn't relate to anything of importance. So this is something that has to be led by surgeons. In my research, we have uh, put together a variety of wearable technologies to form what we're calling the quantified surgeon. And yes, we have been able to quantify a number of different inputs and outputs regarding surgeon performance. We commonly use four different data streams, audio capture, video capture, EEG, and motion. Most of what I will talk to you about today is motion and video. We capture video from multiple views. Uh, audio has been, has been very interesting. Uh, it turns out that how surgeons speak during an unexpected event predicts outcomes. I won't give all the information there. But this is just a sample of the data uh, that we capture. This is one of my colleagues at Stanford who's wearing an EEG sensor. You see the audio recorder. She has sensors underneath her gloves that are tracking her motions. And I will share some of that data with you today. The EEG is the, the blue uh, stream that you see here. Can you see my pointer? No doesn't show up on the screen. But the EEG data is the two bars of data that you see there. One is all blue, the other one has blue to red. The red areas are when the surgeon is focused on something happening in the operation. What has really helped with the analysis of this data is haptics, the science of touch. And it turns out many engineers have focused on haptics and mostly they have looked at haptics with respect to building robots. They have not traditionally looked at surgeons from a haptic perspective in terms of capturing what it is that we do with our hands and with our instruments. So when we talk about the learning curve to mastery, what I have learned in our research is that the data, the motion data gives us a new language. And when you combine haptics with metrics, the data that comes out of the sensors, you will start to see that traditionally, we listen to each other about what we do in the OR. We may watch a few videos here and there, but nobody wants to watch a four-hour video. What I will show you shortly is that the motion data actually can shorten the time for video review and show you the exact 10 seconds of video that you want to watch. And that is really what we need in terms of shortening the learning curve to mastery as well as to competency for residents, picking out that 10 seconds of a critical decision that matters. It has been said that a skillfully performed operation is about 75% decision making and 25% dexterity. And everyone wonders, well, if you're measuring movement, 
How do you get at the decision making? I will share some details regarding that as well. In doing that, I should take you on a journey to understand that there is something called the visual haptic loop. It's unconscious for us. When we are operating, we know exactly what we wanna do. We execute that action and that motion, and then we visualize, we get feedback from the tissues in terms of how they respond to us. Unconsciously, we adjust what we do for the next move. And I've been able to capture this with the motion data, I'll share a little bit of that with you. But there is a visual haptic loop and there's changes in the motion when you are making decisions and getting information from the surgical field in terms of how the tissues respond to you. In this video, I will share with you, this is a plastic surgery fellow and a 20-year veteran of an attending, and they're doing a simulated microvascular anastomosis. The fellow makes a critical mistake. It's a rule-based error at the beginning of the procedure. They start to tie their knot, and they stretch out the suture tail out of the field of view of the microscope, and it causes some issues. They're also sewing away from themselves. There you go, right out of the field of view. The other thing you notice, the experienced surgeon is moving slower. And they also finished much more efficiently. Now imagine trying to tell a fellow the opportunity cost of that suture tail. It's not important, right? I mean, at least from their perspective. And when you look at the video, I mean, they got the suture in and it looks great. But you can actually injure something out of the field of view Try to have that lecture or that conversation and all they're focused on, well, is I got the, you know, I got the suture in and it looks great, but show them this, then they can hear you. On the expert not tying what you see, this, uh, this graph here is for a percent completion. The dark blue is at the beginning of the procedure. And so you see a large loop happening there with the first knot tie. The second knot tie gets smaller and the color changes more green. The third knot tie is yellow. And what you see is the working volume gets smaller because they have to do less work to, to get to that suture tail as it shrinks. Different story with the, with the fellow. Yes, the knot looks beautiful, but look at all of the, the work effort that you did. Um, and so now they have a visual of the difference between their performance and someone who's more experienced. The interesting thing is that master surgeons aren't void of making errors. Sometimes this happens, you're not paying attention, you stretch this out, but we don't accept inferior circumstances. So we would go and cut it before we start tying. That is one of the critical differences between a, someone who is on the learning curve from competency to mastery and then a master surgeon. It's not that they don't make mistakes, it's that they have error recognition and error rescue much more efficiently than those who are still learning. Again, this is a simple rule-based error that made the difference. That was an example of technical. I'll give another one. Uh, I'll also give an example of how we use this data to look at cognitive uh, decisions and the cognitive asp aspects of operations. And I'll talk a little bit about mastery uh, in the end and how we've looked at this data from that perspective. Another scenario with technical skills, uh, and this is a close-up of the motion tracking technology that you see underneath the um, surgical glove, only the first centimeter is the actual magnetic motion tracking technology. The rest of it, it's a wired system. It was never built for surgeons. It's used in sports. And we partnered with this company to actually uh, change the software so that it could be used in 
uh, surgical simulated surgical procedures. This is a, a ventral hernia a repair, a simulated ventral hernia repair, and I apologize to the MIS surgeons in the room because I know that we no longer repair hernias this way. Uh, this was a simulation from uh, 15 years ago, but the data uh, gives you a, a, a great example of the difference between uh, performance and how you can look at the data. The good thing about a tabletop model is that it has real haptics. So a lot of people always ask the question, well, what's the difference between VR and the tabletop models? VR has gotten, virtual reality has gotten really fancy. The graphics are great. The haptics have not caught up with us yet. They're not realistic enough for us as surgeons and the instruments aren't real. So it's not good enough to train a master surgeon, good enough for a medical student and intern learning the steps of an operation, but at some point, we actually have to pick up a real instrument, and that's what we have here. Real instruments um, still with the simulated model. This is a close-up view, it's a sizable hernia, it's a 10 by 10 centimeter hernia. Again, um, we are doing a lot of different uh, procedures and tr uh, for this uh, type of hernia defect, but you can see that this person has pulled up their anchoring sutures and are now using the attacking device to attack the mesh to cover the defect. This is a resident who has um, all of the wearable technology on. He's got the video glasses, audio recording, motion tracking. We're capturing data from the laparoscopic view um, of the camera. There's a separate camera that is collecting the external view. And then we do the tried and true checklist. Um, many of you have used a checklist um, that have been developed um, and validated uh, some level of validation by the folks at Sages and other groups. And then we also have the residents do a self-assessment of their own performance as well as a final product analysis, which is FPA. These uh, models are pretty inexpensive and so you can take the skin off. Each resident has their own uh, simulation and then we can evaluate uh, the uh, accuracy and the quality of their hernia repair. We did use the SAGES uh, manual. Um, the uh, manual from 2014 uh, had a 14-point system which we assigned uh, weight to to come up with the scale to, to develop a final repair score in terms of what does your mesh look like. And what we wanted to see was, is there a correlation between the motion pattern just when the surgeon's moving, when they're not moving, is there a correlation between that and the quality of their uh, hernia repair? And it turns out that the path length, how much you're moving, um, correlates with uh, the quality of the repair. And so the longer your path length and the less smooth that you are in your movement, you're gonna have a lower uh, quality repair. And when we looked at this in depth, it actually relates for um, junior residents in training, they're still learning depth perception. And so they have a longer path length because they keep past pointing and trying to grab something and every time you move, then the motion pattern gets longer. And path length, just to be clear, is if I take that motion pattern and stretch the whole thing out and then measure it, that is the path length, the length of all of your movements throughout the operation. Obviously, if you have a large working volume, like that fellow who was doing the microvascular knot-tie, that path length is much larger uh, than someone who's uh, moving in a very discreet, purposeful manner. So what we did, we just wanted to look at 
what does a motion pattern uh, look like for someone who got, and these are second year residents, who um, achieved a, a high score, a perfect score, 24 out of 24, compared to someone who achieved a lower score? When you look at the pattern, what you see is the hernia site, where the surgeon is standing with their hands on the laparoscopic instruments, and where the male stand lies. And immediately when you look at the person who didn't uh, perform as high, there's a big difference. The pattern is similar in that the hernia site uh, is on one side of the uh, screen, and the surgeon's standing in a similar area, whereas same as the Mayo stand. But what you see is look at all of that motion back and forth to the Mayo stand. And if you're doing that in a laparoscopic procedure, that's a telltale sign that something has gone wrong. And when we look at the uh, video here, where there's this extra movement, we noted that the, there were two things happening. One, the surgeon kept pulling their instrument out with the port, and they had to keep putting it on the mail stand. Turns out they made their incision on the patient's abdominal wall too large, and every major movement they made, the port and the instrument would come out, so they put it on, put the introducer back in, reinsert, and they did that a few times until they said, okay, great, I'm just gonna close this um, port site smaller so that it won't come out. So that's where you see all this extra movement. Um, obviously, this took up most of their time and it really affected the quality of their uh, repair. Once we realized that the entire motion pattern for the whole procedure relates to the quality of the hernia repair, we wanted to see what about the first, first two movements when you're pulling up that anchoring uh, suture, the first tail and then the second tail. And it turns out that the execution time and the path length of the dominant hand can predict the quality of the final product um, repair score. And we call this paper the shortcut assessment. Can residents' operative performance be determined in the first five minutes of an operative task? And when you look at this, again, it's, it really is its depth perception. Um, by the time they pull up the second suture, it's also by manual dexterity. Are they assisting themselves? And you can tell the difference between those who had reached a certain level of instrument autonomy, uh, had mastered depth perception, and assisting themselves. They were just much more efficient, and they had less cognitive load, so they didn't have an issue with addressing unexpected events in this procedure, and they could get through all of the steps um, to complete the procedure. So I'll pause here and say, I've talked a lot about residents, and I've talked about fellows and practicing surgeons, but when you think about the opportunity with this type of data, it really is precision feedback that shortens the learning curve, not only the learning curve to competency, but also the learning curve to mastery for surgeons who are experienced surgeons to share tips and tricks. And when you think about a master surgeon, we've talked about it, we've looked at the data, and I'll share a little bit of it with you, but I just want to pause for this moment so you can pull this together, everything that I'm saying to you and sharing. When we talk about master surgeons, uh, again, it's not that they're error-free, it's that they manage their errors efficiently. That shows up in the motion data, and if you think about two surgeons trying to convince each other, you know, my way is better than yours, um, those conversations never go well. Um, when you look at the motion data, what we see is that there are, if there's 10 critical decisions in an operation for a master surgeon, someone may be 
the most precise and the most efficient at five out of those 10. And someone else may be the most efficient and accurate at a different five. Well, that's where the opportunity is for sharing tips and tricks amongst the master surgeons. And I'll share some of that with you, how that's possible. But I just wanted to pause because to get to precision surgery with this type of data, we're going at both scenarios, shortening the learning curve for the trainees as well as shortening the learning curve to mastery. Here's a cardiothoracic surgeon, very experienced. And I'll play the video again um, just to orient you. The left hand is the assisting hand, very small working volume, going back and forth, just grabbing the needle um, so the surgeon to reload. The right hand is, this is a person who is suturing the atrial appendage. So small working volume at the bottom of that uh, screen. But in the middle, you see this large loop, and that's really just when they're pulling the suture through. You'll see one of the large loops has a little dip in the middle, and that's when the suture gets caught around the atrial appendage, and the surgeon holds place while him and his assistant uh, undo the suture from the atrial appendage. We, in this study, we also put the motion tracking on the assistant, and you can definitely tell the, the level of skill of the surgeon based on the motion pattern of the assistant alone. The other thing we noted um, when you're looking at cardiothoracic fellows and faculty, these two persons, just by comparison, uh, they're both right-handed surgeons. You see the motion pattern of their right hand. The right hand motion pattern for the faculty person looks more smooth. Um, and again, that goes back to what I tell you, smoothness does relate to outcomes. The other thing you see, and this one is, um, these motion patterns are in terms of velocity, not percent completion, but velocity. And the darker blue areas are lower velocity. And this shows, again, that the experienced surgeon moves slower in the areas where it counts. They get that suture in the perfect the first time. Um, sometimes the fellows are moving quickly because they think that that's what a master surgeon looks like, and they're moving fast, and they get in, and they've got to redo, and you see all of that, and it affects their um, working volume as well as their uh, path length. The other thing that you see here is that the left hand of the faculty person has more motion. It has a longer path length. And that is showing that this person has greater bimanual dexterity. And they assist themselves with their left hand, which enables their right hand to move more slowly and more purposeful to get it right the first time. So one example with, from a cognitive perspective. And this one, we went really basic. We wanted to look at perception. And so we picked a scenario where we had surgeons, we had uh, medical students, residents, and surgeons put suture, three sutures in three different materials, balloon material, tissue paper, and soft foam. And in our mind, unconsciously, because we deal with these materials on a regular basis, we kind of have a perception of what it would take to put the suture in. And it turns out everyone had a different operative time. Uh, the attendings were much more efficient across all of the different materials. Uh, the average operative time for the faculty um, was lower. But the average idle time, meaning the pausing and taking more time, was higher for everyone with the tissue paper because everyone was afraid of tearing it with the suture or the needle. What was more interesting was where the pauses took place according to level of skill. So the medical students were more concerned about tearing the tissue 
when entering the tissue with the needle. So they had significantly more idle time than the faculty and the residents. Residents had more idle time when driving the needle through the tissue, and the faculty had more idle time when tying the knot. The interesting thing here is, and we looked at some of these actually even under the microscope, the hole that the faculty made when they did their first needle drive through the tissue was larger, and their idle time was longer. Their idle time got smaller with each suture, and the hole got smaller. That's the point where they're automatically adjusting. Once they get the feedback from the tissues, what you can do, then they perfect that movement, and they keep it going, and uh, then they're more efficient afterwards. Opportunities for improvement here. What was really exciting for us about this was that the idle time, you wouldn't think about putting motion tracking on someone to look at when they're not moving, but it turns out that that completed the choreography. And it turns out that when surgeons are not moving or when they're moving slowly, and we can change that as we modify um, the code, we can say when they're absolutely not moving with both hands or when they're moving you know, with millimeters, um, just slow movements, and we can take a look at this data, but it turns out that idle time correlates not only with skill level, but it also correlates with task difficulty. So the tissue perceived as more difficult, and obviously you could tear it with the needle or your knot tie, um, and so people were more idle, and those who were idle, it was a good thing. Idle with respect to skill level can also relate to surgical planning, decision making, information gathering, and some people were more efficient at this. Well, the other thing we noted is that when we did a study with over 100 residents that had gone into the lab, we tested them before going in the lab and we looked at them when they came out of the lab and they had greater idle time at certain steps of procedures, which in that moment, after two years of not performing it, it helped us to understand which of those skills degraded within a procedure at a certain uh, decision-making point. So it was very helpful um, metric to sort of complete the picture, and this was very exciting for us. So I'll talk a little bit about mastery. What's well, been really fun is to partner with the uh, American College of Surgeons, and in 2019, uh, Dr. Hoyt uh, partnered with our team to put on uh, the Surgical Metrics Project. and. He was very, very forward-thinking in terms of what we could do with this data, but I think the most important thing is that surgeons need to lead this, um, and this is an opportunity for surgeons to take part in the data, to see what it looks like, see their own data, have a discussion around it, and the reality is that there are other groups that are also collecting the data, and this is gonna move forward with or without us. Um, I'll share what we learned um, in 2019, and I'll share some of the things that we're doing here at this conference um, today. It's very, very humbling um, to learn sort of the history of data uh, in our profession, and obviously when you look at our measurement culture, um, we have largely embarked on a competency measurement culture, which can be perceived as punitive but necessary, right? You have to have some minimum level of skill um, for the safety of our patients. Most of what I've been talking to you about has been mastery. Those are two different things. But we don't have the data even for mastery to even benchmark and merge the two together. What is that minimum competency in terms of your surgical skill? And then after that, what's mastery? 
And obviously, none of us have gone into this profession to be minimally competent. We all want to be the best that we can be. But at the same time, we want to be protected to share our data and look at it. So there are some complexities here. And I won't stand here and you know, give this lecture and just share the data without the, the real nuances. Um, it is pretty exciting, again, to partner with the college. This is our lobbying body. There are state laws that protect this data from a quality perspective. There's also federal laws. But there's still loopholes, and so there's a lot of work that we need to do. Um, there are people that are pushing the envelope forward and using some of this uh, video-based assessment in the real OR, but there's a lot of work to do, and so this is my call out to you uh, in the audience. Partner with us, those of us who are working in this space. There's huge opportunities here. So in 2019, we had a 1,800-square-foot booth in the exhibit hall. We had 10 simulated OR stations. We had over 255 participants come by and allow us to put wearable technology on them while they uh, performed a bow repair. The scenario we presented to them was that they had just finished a two-hour license of adhesions and they were now running the bow looking for enterotomies. We didn't tell anyone whether they had an enterotomy or how many they were, but we had pre-fashioned a standardized engineered enterotomy in all of the um, pig intestines. And there was a large injury one centimeter away from a smaller injury. We wanted to see whether people would join the two or whether they would find both of them. So we wanted to build in a decision-making um, component to this. And this is what the real intestines uh, look like. When we analyzed the uh, video, one of the things we did, because we really wanted to look at those who purposely repaired both lesions. Um, so we took out all of those who missed an injury. Um, and there were 39 out of 255 who missed one of the injuries. Uh, we excluded the retired surgeons. Um, their operative times sometimes were a little longer. And then they, there were some incomplete data uh, both on the survey side as well as some of the motion data. So in the end, we had 148 uh, surgeons, practicing surgeons with on average about 20 years uh, experience who found both injuries and purposely repaired them. The first technical decision the surgeons made, some of them repaired them individually and some of them repaired them together. There was a significant difference in the leak rate. Those who repaired it together had only a 4% leak rate. The second decision for those who repaired them individually is are they going to do a double layer closure or single layer closure? Again, the leak rate was lower um, for the double layer closure. No difference whether you did interrupted or running um, if you were doing a single layer, but if you did interrupt it, placing a corner stitch had a notable advantage. It's a 55% leak rate for those who did not place corner sutures before closing the defect. When we looked at the motion data, then we started to learn something in addition to how our decisions affect outcomes. And again, you know, these are things that traditionally are just our, this is how I do it. I only do double layer. I only do single layer. And it turns out, you know, even if you're on the riskiest pathway, you can still have a good outcome. It's 50-50. So it's not 100% um, that you're going to get a bad outcome. But it turns out that those who didn't do corner stitches and did not leak, they placed almost one and a half times more suture. So you think about a two centimeter rent in the bowel. What's your unconscious requirement for how many sutures you place? We never talk about it. We don't have a measurement. We don't tell the residents, it's not in the textbooks that it needs to be 
how many millimeters apart. But we give them feedback all the time if they go too far. It's like, nope, nope. So we verbalize our preferences, but it's, it's not visual. And uh, the other thing is that the surgeons uh, who didn't leak had greater bimanual dexterity. That comes up again in terms of assisting themselves. I think it decreases cognitive load, allows you to visualize and make that moment-to-moment -moment decision with your visual haptic loop. It's just interesting. This is just a, a motion uh, graph comparing someone who didn't leak with someone who did. Look at that um, large motion uh, pattern and path length of the left hand of the person who didn't leak. This uh, paper was recently published in the Annals of Surgery, and our conclusion was that idiosyncratic approaches can be quantified, just our decisions um, and, and how we do things, and they do uh, have a measurable effect on procedure outcomes. Again, leak versus no leak, these are all surgeon preferences, uh, whether you're gonna join it together or not. Uh, there's no hard, fast rule, but we do have some unconscious rules ourselves, and uh, these are untested technical decisions, and now we have the ability to do it and uh, share that information. Again, tips and tricks amongst the masters. It does, if some of these do affect efficiency, um, the bowel leak, you know, these things leak all the time. We, we test them our, ourselves in the operating room, but we had some that were one suture fixed to the leak, and there were some that were three sutures, and those are two different problems. So. Talking a little bit about another uh, wearable, uh, one that I'm actually using in the operating room now. Um, it's an EEG sensor, and it's wireless, so that's why we can use it. The motion tracking technology is still wired. Uh, we have uh, translated it to a wireless one, and now we're working on getting it sterile so that we can use it in the operating room. But right now, the, all of the data that I showed you was in a simulated environment. The EEG works both in the sim environment and in the OR, and the data is pristine. This is what my brain looks like during an appendectomy, and again, the light areas um, are when not a lot of uh, hard decisions are being made. The dark, dark red areas are pretty classic, and the two darkest ones you see are when the staple is being fired across the base of the appendix and the mesentery. That's the point of no return. Right, so I'm not doing this procedure, I'm watching the resident, but I'm super focused on that and we're all making that critical decision. And then the haze of red that you see in the second half is hemostasis. Looking around, that surge and you're paying attention. Um, same thing with a lab coli. The two areas coming across the cystic artery, cystic duct, then hemostasis on the liver bed. It's an amazing pattern and even though this is my brain, Think about comparing it with the resident's brain, but also going back to that point of the video where the resident was either lost or thought that they, you know, you ended up taking over, for example, and they didn't understand why. You can go right back to this point uh, in the video and, and focus on that one part of the operation when the critical decision was being made. This year, um, we're not doing the open surgery procedure with the uh, interartery repair. We are doing a laparoscopic ventral hernia. Um, different uh, anatomy than the 10 centimeter hernia that I showed you before. Shameless plug, please come by the ACS uh, Central booth. We are within ACS Central um, booth 1045. And what we have done is we collected data prior to this from master surgeons. And it turns out just to this one pilot that we've already done before coming here is that Surgeons make a wide variety of decisions based on the, even if we present to them a standard hernia defect, 
and it's a midline, it's a, it's a ventral hernia with a midline uh, recurrence of two small, you know, Swiss cheese um, defects in the midline of a prior incision. And uh, the suture length, and those two things significantly affect your mesh prep time as well as your mesh manipulation and suture manipulation time when you are repairing the hernia. So it's very interesting. You've got to get over and see it. I have one little uh, video to show with you. This is real-time EEG data. So we're working with an, another company this year that is giving real-time data. So they're there. You can put the EEG sensor on. And I'll just clue you in. This is a fast-forward um, hernia, repair of the hernia. It's a simulated repair. So you see the two two circles in the on the bottom screen, those two holes are the Swiss cheese repair. The smaller, darker holes are just the, the body of the simulator. Before I play the video, I want you to see there's activity that's taking place here that's very different than the other activity. That's mesh prep on the outside. Um, and so they're sort of focused on that, this person uh, placing in terms of where they're placing the suture and also focused on their assistant and having them help them. Then the next space you see is after the mesh has been deployed in the abdomen, they're orienting it. And so a lot of, not a whole lot of decisions there. You're just sort of focusing it. The part after that is when they're pulling up their anchoring sutures. And so I'll play it really quickly, um, but you'll see all of this happening and the difference in uh, their EEG while they are uh, operating. Mesh prep. The mesh goes in the abdomen really quickly. You'll see it when it appears on the bottom screen. That went in really quickly. And now you see you're in this next phase in terms of focus. Orienting, pulling up that first suture, dealing with all the, the rat's nest of suture there. And then now they're just systematically pulling up uh, more anchoring sutures and orienting uh, themselves. And so the pattern of focus changes. And then you see the focus goes down. Um, once you get two or three pulled up because you're only, you don't have, you're not searching for the other sutures. So it's just very interesting. The other thing is that uh, this enjoyment part, the one on the bottom, we're enjoying the very beginning and then the very end of the procedure that it's over and you've got through this. So in summary, again, uh, this data has been very exciting to work with and to learn um, about surgery and how surgeons think and how surgeons move and the decisions they make and especially the unconscious ones that we're able to piece together and bring it to light and share with everyone. Uh, again, there's definitely an opportunity to shorten the learning curve to competency as well as mastery. What we need most is to collect data from practicing clinicians. We've done a lot of this work with residents and collected data from residents, but it's in a vacuum if you think about it. We don't want the residents to be like other residents. We need a benchmark of what the faculty actually do. So in 2019, we had mostly faculty that came and we had the residents bring their faculty um, to us so that they could have the database so that they could have criterion performance from um, their faculty members. And so we're hoping that you do the same uh, here and come and visit the booth. The database is necessary. And uh, the real goal is everyday use. Uh, for information exchange. And again, we as surgeons have to lead this. It's so important. Otherwise, someone else is going to figure this out. They're going to get it wrong, and they're going to impose this on us. Uh, it's not going to be pretty, but it's better if we are part of it and help people understand that this is uh, what's meaningful to us, and this is how it relates to outcomes. 
Thank you. Thank you. That was a great talk. Sorry for that. No, no, it was fun. Super dry. We may have uh, time for perhaps one question. Uh, I was very curious about uh, your comment about the unconscious uh, preferences or uh, choices of technique that we have, things that we don't talk about, like how exactly far apart do we space the sutures. And I'm just wondering, have you done, have you, have you correlated any kind of psychological testing um, to try and differentiate uh, the types of people that we call perfectionists, because I think uh, there are personality uh, questionnaires or surveys that can pull out people who are more anal, I guess, in their behaviors versus people who are less so, and to see whether uh, identifying those personality types can show you the person who didn't put the corner stitch in did it interrupted, but still had the low leak rate versus the person who didn't put the corner suture in and, you know, put their sutures further apart, but whether, whether you can link personality traits to these kinds of choices. So the, the personality trait tools are not that great. Um, and so, what we tend to do is actually, when we've had opportunities, we look at the decisions that surgeons or practitioners make across a variety of procedures, and there is a pattern. So people tend to do the same things. You know, so this was suturing you know, on, a, on a loop of bowel, um, but they tend to do similar things when they're suturing elsewhere, if that makes sense. And so we have seen that there's just a, a, a way of doing things and you have perfected that technique over the years and that's just how you do it. And so that has helped us to understand really what, what are the consequences of that. You know, you've seen a technique, you've modeled it after, you know, your, uh, in your apprentice with a, a famous surgeon that you want to model yourself after, and you spend 20 years perfecting that technique, and um, there's no feedback. Um, I can make it more simple because I can tell you, we even did a very similar study with the clinical breast exam, so basic. We see the same exact thing. People have preferences, and we had thousands of people. We could categorize them into four different ways of doing the breast exam in terms of the kinematics of their fingertips, thousands of people fit into four categories. And it really is regional differences in how people are trained. And so we start to go back. And the way to do it is to, one, you have to define what it is. Because in one study, we can't tell. We're only going to get maybe 200, 300 people here. We need 1,000 to kind of map out how, what are the range of decisions people make. Then we can, when we meet people who make those decisions, get a sense how did you come to be that way? Um, there may be some opportunities, as you're saying, you know, to do that and observe them in the, in the real operating room. The other part but, I was getting at was you talked about uh, higher performing and lower performing students. And while there may be an element of training and mastery over time, I'm wondering also about whether 
some of those categories of people that you have, if they have a certain way of doing things a priori, uh, that they would, maybe they take a longer time or have a longer path length initially, and that would improve over time, but that initially their, their outcome would be better right from the get-go because of a general psychological attitude towards, let's say, perfectionism or something else. Yes, we have been very careful with the time metric because time is not a measure of quality. We've been very careful with that metric and what we have learned um, in other studies, other procedures as well, is that if a person who's learning has the same time as someone who is super experienced, usually they're actually failing because they don't have the ability to do it that efficiently and accurately at the same time. So we're very careful how we use the time metric. We mostly uh, stratify by outcomes and then work backwards. Dr. Pugh, and uh, I just want to say I, I continue to be in awe of your work. Um, I did want to ask you about um, motion metrics and how it affects your, um, your perception of its value as an instructive tool. So, you know, we've been measuring uh, path length in uh, VR simulations for almost 20 years. And um, I'm still having difficulty with uh, cracking the code of how, how to teach disciplined motion based on observations of things like path length and right and left-handed uh, motion efficiency. Have you actually looked at that and decided how you teach an inexperienced, for example, laparoscopist how to be more disciplined in their use of, uh, of motion of instruments to do the job better? Thank you, Dr. Seymour. I love that question. It turns out that that is another benefit of capturing motion data from experienced clinicians. Because once they have the, those who have the best outcome, then you know what the pristine motion pattern looks like. If your data set is full of residents, you don't really know what the pristine pattern looks like because it's, you know, unless you have enough of them that have gotten a good outcome. So I tend to work backwards. The motion data is actually only useful for you to shorten your video review. So it has to be synchronized with video. There's no way that I'm gonna tell a resident to go shorten their path length. That means nothing to them. However, if I have one resident and you saw the two comparisons that has a long path length in there, and then I can see the pattern, they're back and forth to the mail stand in a laparoscopic procedure, something is wrong. All you have to do is click on the data in that area and you can see what's happening with the video. Their laparoscopic instrument and their port is on the table multiple times. That's a huge problem. So that's not a, that's not a dexterity issue there. That, that's a rule base. So path length, it's a sign of something. It's not a diagnosis. It's a sign that, of, of something. So it helps you then, it's really using data to decode the video data. Um, but I, I tend not to use the motion metrics as a performance metric in and of itself. Thank you again. This concludes uh, this year's uh, Rabdon Lecture. Thank you for coming. Thank you again. Congratulations. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. 
You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.